1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but you are now God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Good morning, everybody. You guys can be seated. Can you guys hear me okay over there? Can you guys hear me? Good. Uh, there's a handful of seats over here and up here. If you guys want to scoot a little closer, I think you can still maintain social distance and do that. Uh, it's up to you, though. I will do my best to project my voice as thoroughly as possible. For uh, moms and grandmas with babies, don't don't trip. It's all good. It does not bother me. I don't think it'll bother anyone else. It actually brings us great joy to hear them be goofballs. So we're good there. Um, let me pray for us, and we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I, I cannot do what only you can do through these passages. God, I thank you that during my time of study that you've convicted me, that you've uh, reminded me of your promises, and that you have uh, restored a certain aspect of who you are and what you have done for me. Now I pray, God, that, that you would move me aside and that your work would be done in the hearts of those who are here today and who are listening online, Lord. Uh, we, we trust you. We trust your Holy Spirit that it is here now, present with us. Um, I pray that you would soften our hearts. I pray that any distractions, um, any uncomfortableness, anything like that would be pushed aside that we might just be able to sit under your word uh, and, and be molded by it, Lord. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the most important thing about you? You see, depending on how we answer that question, it will help us better understand how we go about our daily lives. It'll help us better understand how we respond to troubled times, how we respond to joy and success. What the most important thing about you will help us uh, understand what it is that frustrates us, frustrates us, brings us anger or contempt, and brings us joy and peace and comfort. It'll better help us understand the things that we value most in life. That question ultimately is an identity question. What is the most important thing about us? And for the Christian, the answer to that question is that we are sons and daughters of a God who rules and reigns over all creation. That we are sons and daughters that rules and reigns over all creation. Now here's the kicker. When you hear that, it's like, oh, that's good. That's my answer. I'm going to write that one down. But 
But often we don't live that way. At least if you're like me, I don't live on a day-to-day basis as though I am a son of the God who rules over all creation. Right? Like if you followed me around on a daily basis, if you can follow me for a week, you can hear everything that I said, you saw everything that I did, and you can hear everything that I thought, by the end of that week, you would not conclude that I live as though I am a son of the living God who rules and reigns over all creation. So why? Why is that? Ultimately, the reason I think that happens for us, or just me, is because uh, we know it here in our head, but something happens between our head and our heart where there's a disconnect. There's a, a belief issue. And today in our passage, Peter is reminding the church in Asia Minor, and he wants to tell us something about what it means to be children of God. And so our sermon is broken up into three sections. I'm actually very proud of this. Chris is really good at like the three R's, and I always mess all that up. Uh, But today I nailed it. We're going to go over the promise, who you are in Christ, the problem why it's so hard to believe it, and the power to believe. And uh, side note, the answer to that is the relentless love of God. So Peter starts out and he says that you are a chosen race. A chosen race. What does it mean to be chosen by God? First thing I want to point out is that this language is uh, adoption language. It's not just like him picking out something that he really likes. You have to recognize, and it's important for us to reflect on the reality that all of creation, from the smallest molecule to the largest star, everything that has been ever created is God's and God's alone. He owns it. He is sovereign over it. He reigns over it. He sustains it. And out of all creation, out of all of it, you and I are his prized possession. We are his adopted children. We are chosen by God. Now, uh, his chosenness is very different than any kind of being chosen that we've ever experienced in the past. So let me give you an example. Uh, we've, we've been chosen for a job. You may have been in the past chosen for, uh, to play on a sports team. You may have been chosen to be a part of a friends group. Here's the thing with that though. In all of the being choosed in our life, it comes with a caveat, almost a quick pro quo. In all of those situations, if I get chosen for a job, I still have to show up and perform. And if I don't show up and perform, I can be unchosen. They can let me go. If I'm on a basketball team and I've been chosen to play on that team, or if you're Doc Rivers for the Clippers, you were chosen to coach and now you're gone. Where's Dan? I was giving him a hard time for that. The point here is, is that every single one of us has probably been chosen for something at some point in our lives. But every single one of us has probably also been uh, betrayed, let go, not good enough, maybe, maybe not good enough in, in like really intimate and valuable relationships, maybe relationships with our parents, with friends, 
we all know what it feels like. If you've been on this earth for any number of years, eventually you will know what it feels like to not be chosen. But here's the beauty of God choosing you is that it actually has nothing to do with you. There's nothing particularly special about you. And that might sound like a diss, but that's actually really good news. Because if there's nothing particularly special about you, then the reason why you are chosen is simply because God chose to choose you. It's his will that you would be his prized possession. Your value and your worth as a chosen adopted son and daughter has everything to do with God imprinting that upon you, which means you can do nothing to change that. You are simply his. You cannot be unchosen. Deuteronomy 32 says it like this. He found him in a desert land. And in a howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. You see, God, our Father in heaven, chooses us for himself. He chooses us to simply be gracious to us, to show us favor so that we might see and experience and know his glory, to live with him forever. He chooses us. Some old dead theologian said it like this. He has chosen you as, a, as his treasure. As a man chooses out gems from a heap of stones with this difference. The man finds gems very different from other stones and therefore chooses. But God chooses them and therefore they become gems and very different from the others. He has chosen you, that you might be holy and without blame, that you might have your filth taken away and that you might have the image of God put upon you, that your soul might be adorned to be the bride of his glorious and dear son. What cause for love is here? And if you think I'm joking, it literally says the quote, some old dead theologian. You are a chosen race. So let's address the race card. That word race, uh, it's, it's, it's probably a little bit better translated in our situation here to, to, to offspring or kindred or kind. And the scripture through and through reminds us that at the end of the day, there's actually only two offspring. There are only two kinds of humans. Every single one of us, when we are born, we are born descendants, inheritors uh, from Adam. Adam is our representation in the garden, which means that we inherit his sin nature and everything that comes along with that. But when you are born again through the blood of Jesus Christ, you become a new kind of human. You are born again under God, under Jesus, in Christ, and you inherit his righteousness and everything that comes with his kingdom. And so we truly are adopted sons and daughters of a God who rules and reigns over all creation. He goes on to talk about being a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Just a quick reminder for us. The, uh, all throughout the Old Testament, there was a king and there was a priest. 
and the two were, ne were never together. But then I think it was uh, Zachariah, Chris will correct me later if I'm wrong. Zachariah comes and he prophesizes that one day there will be a priest that sits on a throne. He prophesies that one day the king and the priest would be one. And that, of course, was Jesus. He was the king who rules and reigns over his creation, but he was also the high priest, our representation before God. And when Jesus died and resurrected and imprinted us as his adopted children, we then become the royal priest of our neighborhoods of our families, of our communities. You see, because God is our Father in heaven, we have direct access to him, which means we have this really unique, beautiful opportunity to bring the requests of our fellow uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and non-believers before God. We get to bend his ear. Man, this is... It's hugely important for us to recognize the value of having direct, direct access to the Lord and Savior. I need water. We are also a holy nation. The idea of being holy can often be uh, misunderstood as being perfect, like the dude who doesn't sin. That is not what holy means in this context, though this context, it means we are set apart for God's purposes. And this is a radical way of living. You see, most of us, I think, or at least if you're more like me, uh, we think of holy as like, what are the rules and let me follow them. That, that is my pursuit of holiness. And oftentimes, many people who uh, are, are, are walking the Christian life we fall into this rut of almost like a, another quid pro quo with God where it's like, okay, if I follow the rules, um, he will He will bless my marriage. If I raise my kids the way the scripture tells me to, they will grow up to be good children. If I pursue my career the way the Bible tells me to, then I will be successful. There's almost this quid pro quo uh, that we, the relationship that we end up with God. But this idea of being a holy nation is totally radical, totally other, otherly, and an antithesis to what it means to really be an American. Because to be an American uh, in Western culture, we are told that we're supposed to be the kings of our own kingdoms, the lowercase g gods of our life, right? We, have, we literally have that phrase now, God mode. We can go God mode. But to be holy, set apart for God, is to look at our entire lives and go, man, God, this is all yours. My time, my talent, my treasure, it is all yours. You are not here to serve me. I want to, I have the desire to serve and to glorify you with my whole life. It is a totally radical way of living. To summarize this first little section, Peter is actually pointing us to the threefold office of Jesus. Jesus, theologians point out that Jesus is the prophet, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king. He's the perfect pro prophet in the sense that he is the embodiment of the word of God and speaks truth. He is the fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament. He is the priest in the sense that he offered, offered up the final sacrifices for our lives and is in direct communion with God. And he is the king in that he sits on a throne and reigns over all creation. 
what Peter's doing here is he's telling us that in each one of us now is a prophet, a priest, and a king. In each one of us, we are blessed with the opportunity to speak the truths of God's word as prophets. In each one of us, uh, we have an opportunity to care for and love and serve our neighbors in the same way that the priest was responsible to making sure that in their village, no one went hungry, no one went sick. And that's an important balance because a lot of people like to do like the truth telling without the loving and others like to do all the loving without the truth telling. But as prophets and priests, those two come together. And as kings, we recognize that all of our power, all of our privilege, all of our finances, our resources are ultimately to build up not the kingdom of man, but the kingdom of God. So in each one of us, we are prophet, priest, and king. He says we are a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and in wonderful light. Again, I can't emphasize enough the importance of this. This is uh, adoption wordage here. And we all, I mean, we all love a good adoption story, right? That is our story. We are adopted into the family of God, which radically changes us. This past weekend, Saturday, um, I, uh, I had the, the blessing of being able to officiate my bio brother's wedding. And um, for those of you who don't know, I think most of you probably do, for the one or two people who don't know, I did not grow up knowing my biological father. Uh, we were separated at a very young age. I have no memory of him whatsoever. But we recently reconnected about a year ago, and it's been really neat. It's been nice. Uh, I, I recognize something about this wedding that I never realized before. What I recognize is that I have always been a guest. Here's what I mean by that. Maybe, maybe some of you can relate, or maybe this is just my weird head. Uh, my, my mom had a, uh, I had a couple of step people. I don't even like calling them stepdads because it's too much credit. <laughs> I had some step people in my life. And uh, at all times, always, I never felt like I was a son. Like I remember when at one of the weddings, uh, I would be walking around and, and the step person would be like, oh yeah, that's Becky's son. Like I was never his son. I was always Becky's son. And I remember another one, uh, we would go to the family parties. Yeah, great family. But I was always treated like the kid down the street. Remember that scene in Home Alone where the kid's like yapping away as they're trying to get in the van? That was what it felt like growing up. Like I was a little kid that was like, where are you guys going? Can I get in the van with you guys? And I wasn't like, I was welcome, but I wasn't a, I wasn't a family member. I was a guest. And so uh, at the wedding on Saturday, um, every time I turned a corner, my bio dad would throw his big old arm around me and be like, this is my son. This is my son. And for the first time, I felt like I was a part of the family, not a guest. And I had never realized that my entire life I felt like a guest, which was fine. But there's just this different, there's just different feeling altogether. And that's, that's an allusion to something that happens between us and God when he adopts us. That the Lord God in heaven throws his arm around you and says, proudly, this is my son. This is my daughter. And you feel 
home. That's good news, right? So what's the problem? Why is it so hard for us to live and believe that that's really real, that that's truly true about us? Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against you. And each and every one of us, in some sense, we are exiles, sojourners. And that doesn't give us excuse to not care about the world around us, uh, to, to treat, it, treat it flippantly. But what it tells us is that as children of God, we are not going to ever comfortably fit in any box that this world has to give us. And if, God forbid, we ever start to find ourselves fitting comfortably in some box, we've lost sight of who we are in Christ. Uh, Walker Percy um, wrote a, a series of short stories, uh, and, and in one of them, he paints this picture of this of this uh, this guy who gets stuck on an island, and he's on this island for so long that he forgets. He's waiting to be rescued. And Percy Walker like feels pity for this man. Here's what he says. He should be what he is and not pretend to be somebody else. He should be a castaway and not pretend to be at home on an island. To be cast away is to be a grave predicament and that is not a happy state of affairs. But here's, here's where it's key but it is very much happier than being a castaway and pretending one is not. This is despair. The worst of all despairs is to be at home when one is homeless. See guys, there's this spiritual war for our souls. What Peter is telling us. There is this spiritual war for our souls and that uh, the world... The things around us are vying for our energy, for our attention, for our loyalties. And the more that those things win over our uh, understanding of the world and our attention, the more and more we lose sight of who we are in Christ. And what's interesting is that Peter says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. You see, the devil wants to use all the things that are really important to us. The things that we're like, I, this is a stake in the ground. This needs to be true. I need people to understand this thing about the world. The devil uses our passions against us. And he's been doing this uh, since the garden. So here I want, I, I, I got really fancy and I have an illustration. Which is, I mean, it's pretty cool, right? When does Chris ever have He actually has old versions. So uh, I know some of you can't see this. I'll explain it to those who cannot. Um, the first thing is our identity in Christ, and it's a pie chart. I know I got excited. It's just a pie chart. <laughs> but uh, the idea here is that our identity in Christ is wholly his. The entire pie chart, who, for those who can't see it, is one color. But then here's what happens as we go through life. We start to identify ourselves with certain uh, tribes, right? 
I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm a gun owner. I think guns are gross. I think essential oils can heal cancer. The only oil I'll touch is motor oil. Like Five Guys is the best burger. No, it's In-N-Out. Right? And we all know it's In-N-Out candy. And so what ends up happening is uh, really cool pie chart number two, which is you have all of these color colors in this tiny little itty-bitty sliver of who you are in Christ. Now, some of us might be like, well, Oscar, like those things are really important, uh, and I don't identify them. I don't identify. My identity is not caught up in them. Those are just things that help me make sense of the world. But is that true? Is it really true? Because social theory has actually proven to us that the way humans, we are humans, have value in life is through different, differentiating themselves with other people. In other words, the way we find ourselves valuable, the way we feel good about ourselves is making distinctions between us and them. So it's not even that you have to be a staunch ex. It's simply that you know you're not this thing over here. And let me just say that when our identities are caught up in those things, that it becomes very dangerous for us. I, I want to put it like this. Think about it like this. All of these things, it's like putting on lenses, right? I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I uh, support the police. I I'm support Black Lives Matter. I, uh, I went there. Why not? I, uh, I, you know, I essential oils, whatever it is. Like we start putting these lenses on and then we start seeing the world through these lenses. We start seeing people through these lenses and these lenses don't make life more clear. They don't help us see the truth, beauty, and goodness of God better. At the end of the day, they distort the truth, beauty, and goodness that is in God. And they distort the way we view other people. Like there are some that can't even watch a sermon by someone and be like, this is really good, but like, how does he vote? Because like we, we have these lenses, but here's the worst part. The worst part is this. We then take these lenses. I'm, I'm a homeschooler. I'm all about public school, whatever it might be. We take these lenses and we actually start to read our Bibles with them. And it's like, oh, see, the Bible supports my position. God's got my back on this one. If everybody else were just to read their Bibles, they would get it. But the reality is that we're blinded from the truth of God, the very truth that, that would have the power to transform and change our lives and make us agents of change in the world. We're blind from it. And when you're in that state of affairs reading your Bible, the devil doesn't give a rip how often you read it because you're, we're blind to it. And let me just say, like, I'm, I'm guilty here. I've been here before. The world wants our loyalty, but we are exiles. And for us to lay a stake in the kingdom of man is a lot like what Percy said earlier. The worst of all despairs is to be at home when you are homeless. This is not who we are. So how do we find the power to believe? 
Actually, let me, let me just say one other thing. As we are a royal priesthood, a representation of God on this earth, when we have these layered lenses on, my concern and my fear and what I've done before personally is I then hold my lenses. I almost become a representation of these things rather than a representation of God. And so in uh, Russell Moore's book, Onward, I actually left it at my office and it's quarantine. I'm like, not, there's a zombie apocalypse in LA. I'm not allowed to go to my office. Uh, so I couldn't get the book. But what I remember from this story that Russell Moore says is that his, friend, his kids had a friend who uh, was like from a broken home. And um, recently the dad had left the mom and he was just down, downcast. And so they've been trying to hang out with this kid and they're inviting him to church. And the mom, he's like nine years old. And the mom finally says, yeah, you can take him to church with you. You know, Russell Moore was preaching that day. And so they get to the church and he's walking down the aisle and he shows up in, in like a vote for Obama shirt. He's nine. Like he doesn't know the difference. His parents probably bought it and put it on him, right? But he's walking down the aisle and some guy, I think he even said it was an elder at the church looks over at him and says something like, you better take that shirt off before the Lord burns it off. Which Russell Morris says that like he just kind of slumped over. Here's this kid who is, who, who perhaps the Lord is seeking after, who is not yet but could one day be an adopted heir, brothers and sisters with us in the Lord. But for this person's eyes, I don't know him, but for me, it seems like in this person's eyes, he had the wrong lens on. He was seeing the world in a way that is not reality. So how do we move away from this distraction into the power to believe? moving from our head to our hearts. And the answer to that, like I said earlier, is the relentless love of God. The power to believe comes from looking at Jesus. Peter's actually quoting uh, a, a little small prophetic book in the Old Testament called Hosea. When he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So here's, here's the story. And it's, uh, I, to be honest with you, I hadn't ever really thoroughly studied it until this past week. And um, it's, it's a doozer. So God goes to Hosea and he's like, my Israel continues to um, align itself with political and military forces it continues to worship false idols like Baal, which is an Old Testament false idol, kind of a weird God. It's not important. Um, and, and God goes to Hosea, his prophet, and he says, I want you to know what, what it's like. And he says, it's, it's like um, being married to a woman who betrays you. And so he actually tells Homer, I'm sorry, Homer, Hosea, to go and marry Gomer. And Gomer was a known prostitute. So they start this life together and they end up having three kids. Uh, one of them ends up, the daughter ends up being named No Mercy. God tells him, name your daughter No Mercy, which is kind of weird, but we'll get there in a second. And then they have a son and he says, name that one, not my people. Which, guys, like awkward. Your wife gets pregnant and you're like, God, what should I name my kid? And he's like, name it, not yours. Like something's up, you know what I mean? 
not good. I said it was a doozy. Uh, so, so eventually Gomer leaves Hosea and uh, she ends up going off with other men. And God writes this beautiful poem through Hosea to describe to him what it's like and what he's going to do. He's basically telling him like, Gomer is the church. That is what's happening. She, her loyalties and her loves are not with me. But he tells, he tells Hosea, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring her back and I'm going to marry her. And he writes this beautiful poem. But before, what he does is he takes Hosea into the marketplace and Hosea sees Gomer and she's being sold as a prostitute. And God tells her, you see her? Go and buy your wife back and make her yours again. And remember what I said earlier, uh, the, the names of the, the, uh, the kids were no mercy and not my people. Listen again what, what he says. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so Hosea goes and he gets Gomer and he writes this poem and he says like, mind you, Gomer is bat beaten battered and betrayed. She is, she's been sold into prostitution. Like she has not had a good couple of years not being married to Hosea. But Hosea forgives her. He goes and he buys her back and he writes this, lie down in safety. Be betrothed to me forever. I will allure you. I will speak tenderly to her. What Peter's doing here is he's saying like this, this truth has now come true. I'm going to go ahead and move these. He's saying this has now come true for you. Here's why that's important. Um, one of Kelly and I's favorite things at a wedding is to watch like the bride and the groom make eye contact for the very first time down the aisle. It's the best. It's so cool. Uh, and often the groom will get teary-eyed. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard, but uh, Cammie and Eric had an interesting situation. First, my favorite part about Cammie and Eric's wedding is that one of Eric's uncles, I think, one of my favorite uncles I've ever not met, decides with like his old VHS, mind you, she's got like the camera crew there, the professional cameraman, and she's Cammie, you know it's going to turn out good. But Uncle Rico decides that he's going to get like the best angle. So he gets up out of his seat and he actually goes behind the groomsmen and is like, all like filming up in their face and like all of us are like you know but then when cammy turns that corner it like it's like he doesn't even exist i forgot that he was there and so did i think cammy and eric uh eric starts to cry and at first it's really sweet but then it gets kind of awkward you guys know like the ugly cry where you're like and there's just like stuff happening and there's sweat and like that was Eric. Like he was just like, Ugh! and Cammy was like, Ugh! and it was like it was really sweet. But everyone else was like, "This is is this good? like, are we good?" That's what happened. There's pictures. Uh, here's here's why I'm bringing that up. Where does the power come from to believe? You see, when when God buys His people back, and that's what He's doing. Jesus steps into the marketplace 
and purchase us with his life. And he betroths us to him. And he looks at us in the same way that a bride and groom will look at each other walking down that aisle. Here's the point. The power to believe comes because there is nothing greater in this world than to be adored by someone you adore. To be loved by someone you love. And so when we look to God and we see how he loves us, the way Eric loved Cammie, the way I love my wife and the way I saw her walking down the aisle, when we see God love us that way, all the distractions melt away and all we see is ourselves through our Savior's eyes. We are loved by someone we love. We are adored by someone we adore. I want to close with this. Uh, It's a quote from a song that we're going to sing in a minute from Citizens. It goes like this. If I ever forget my true identity, show me who I am and help me to believe. You have bought me back with the riches of your amazing grace and relentless love. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.